Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to the District of Crime podcast. I'm Destiny. I'm Khadijah. And I'm Sam. And today we're going to be discussing the incidents that unfortunately killed 10 people and critically injured three through a span of 22 days in October of 2002, also known as the D.C. Sniper Attacks. Lee Boyd Malvo received a sentence of life in prison at the age of 17. Now, in 2019, Malvo is trying to get another trial to receive a lesser sentence for what he did over a decade ago. Does he deserve an appeal? We'll let you listeners be the judge. What made these brutal shootings stand out, amongst others, is how random they were without reason. Yeah, the targets were completely random, normal everyday people of different ages, races, genders, etc. According to a detailed list of events from Raker.com, the first shooting took place on October 2nd. 55-year-old program analysis James D. Martin was simply making his way across the parking lot of Shoppers Food Warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland, when he was unfortunately shot and killed. What police and the public didn't know is that 40 minutes before the incident, the shooters shot into a Michael's Craft Store where they shot into the window in the same shopping center and no one was harmed. So what you're saying is this was the start to a killing spree that no one was ready for. Yes, or prepare for it. The next day, October 3rd, is when the police started to notice this is more than just one single incident. Five more people were murdered in 24 hours in five separate locations. The first victim of the horrific day is 39-year-old James L. Buchanan. According to the Washington Post, he was a landscaper who was simply riding his lawnmower when he was shot and killed in Rocksville, Maryland. The shooters then traveled to Aspen Hill, Maryland, where they shot and killed Pre-Kumar Wakir, who was a 54-year-old cab driver when he was fueling his vehicle at the time. Next, Sarah Ramos, 34-year-old housekeeper, babysitter, wife, and mother, who was just waiting on a bench outside of a post office in Rossmore, Maryland. According to FBI.gov, witnesses to Sarah's murder explained witnessing a white vehicle fleeing the scene. This is something that's extremely important to keep in mind for later on. Lori Ann Lewis Rivera, 25-year-old, is the next victim. She was preparing to vacuum out her car when she was shot and killed. Much like Sarah, she was also a mother and a wife. Which is what makes this situation so sad. The final victim of that day is Pascal Charlotte, 72, who immigrated to the U.S. from Haiti. He actually survived the initial shot, but unfortunately he did pass away at the hospital later on. And wasn't he the only victim who was actually killed in D.C.? Yeah, he was, and this is why some people refer to the shooters as the Beltway Killers instead of the D.C. Snipers. The first victim of this devastating day at 7.41 a.m., while the last victim died around 9.20 p.m., making this day a day of terror that lasted around 10 hours long. As we said before, this is the day that police started to connect the dots that this is bigger than they originally thought. October 3rd is the day that police launched an official investigation into these killings. The next day, October 4th, the shootings didn't stop, but there was something strangely good about it. This is the day that Caroline Sewell survived. From what I've heard from the Washington Post, Caroline was shot when she was loading up her van, and she was the first person in Virginia to get shot, right? Yeah, you're right. She was shot in the Spotsylvania Mall in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She was 47 at the time and was a mother of two. She later told the Baltimore Sun when they asked about what happened that day, As I was slamming the door down, I felt a pain in my back and then in my front. About the same time I heard something hit the car, I dropped to the ground, and I prayed that God would let me live so that I could take care of my kids. That's really horrible. I couldn't even imagine. 
It is horrible, but she did survive. She's alive and doing well today, and luckily, there's another survivor from these two monsters. Oh yeah, even though this part is really sad, it's also inspiring. On October 7th, Ann Brown gets shot in his abdomen. Yeah, so Iron was dropped off in front of his middle school by his aunt, and as he was walking up the front doors, he was shot just like you said. Obviously, this is a serious wound, but his aunt does manage to get him to a hospital in time to save his life through emergency surgery. God bless that woman. Two days later, things turned from inspiring to menacing. When What the public didn't know is that on October 7th, a tarot card was found on the scene of Ian Brown's shooting. This tarot card read, Call Me God. And on October 9th, the unknown person leaked that information to the press. And I'm sure the press went crazy over that. They did, and the police force were angry. Because they were trying to keep this investigation tight and closed and under wrap. In fact, Charles Moose, who was a Montgomery County police chief at the time, criticized the press and the news outlets for hindering the investigation. Wait, so do you guys think that if this information was never leaked, the two shooters would have been caught sooner? I mean, that is definitely possible, but I hate thinking that these murders were dragged on because of some silly reporters. Yeah, that is kind of a scary thought. Moving on, later that day, another man was killed. Again, doing some everyday tasks get shot out of and killed out of nowhere. Dean Harold Myers was 53 and fueling up his car when he was shot. He was a civil engineer in Fairfax, Virginia. And he was actually a Vietnam veteran too, which is what, and what's really heartbreaking is that he was shot during the war and actually survived. I had no idea, that's really heartbreaking. There was also some witnesses to this crime too. Although they didn't see Myers get shot, People at least reported that they heard the gunshot and they didn't see any vehicle fleeing the scene. Two days later, on October 11th, another man is killed in Virginia. His name was Kenneth Bridges and he was also 53 years old. He had six children and ran the MATAH network in which he encouraged African Americans to support black owned businesses. This is when police started setting up roadblocks around the area to try to stop anyone who was fleeing, but it was unsuccessful. I also want to point out that at this point, they're still looking for a white minivan, which as we said before, is important because it isn't the car that they should be looking for. At this point, it's been nine days since the murders first began and the shootings still don't stop. In Falls Church, Virginia, Linda Franklin was shot in the parking lot of a Home Depot, loading up her minivan with her husband. Linda Franklin was the FBI analyst, right? Is there any evidence that the shooters targeted her because of it? She was an FBI analyst, yeah. However, the police concluded that there's no connection there. The shooters most likely didn't know about her job, and again, eyewitnesses report to police that they see a white minivan leaving the scene. Alright guys, let's break up this sad news with some more inspiring stories. We have another survivor that gets shot on October 19th. His name is Jeffrey Hopper, and he was 37 at the time. He was another victim who was shot in Virginia outside of the state house in Ashland. Much like Iron Brown, he was rushed to the hospital immediately where he received emergency surgery. Police tried to set up roadblocks again and because of the steakhouse Hopper was shot at, it was close to Interstate 95. They set up those roadblocks in both Virginia and Maryland. They were unsuccessful in trying to find the white minivan that they were looking for again. The next day, again much like Iron Brown, a handwritten note was found at the scene. Although details didn't get released, we do know that it was a couple pages long. It demanded a big sum of money and threatened more killings if they didn't get the money. The note also criticized the police and accused them of being inept. I got that feeling with the tarot card, like they were trying to taunt the police almost, 
but this note definitely confirms that. This reign of terror ends with Conrad Jansen to the mountain. He was the last victim. He was 37-year-old bus driver, father of two, whose friends had a passion for football. He was also killed in Aspen Hill, which means the shooters moved back to Maryland at this point. After being shot in his chest, they looked they took Johnson to the hospital in Bethesda and he did survive the ride. However, he did pass away at the hospital. But how did they get caught though? Really, the real break in the case came from phone calls to a tip line and two priests from someone claiming to be the sniper. The caller pointed them in the direction of an earlier Alabama shooting. But didn't he drop something at the scene of the crime? Yeah, Malvo had dropped a brochure which he had one of his fingerprints on it. The fingerprints matched the file that was on immigration records, giving authorities their first suspect. For the sinister murders committed for three weeks in October of 2002 in the Washington metropolitan area. The brutality of their crimes made them psychopaths in the public eyes. And they were termed psychopathic having serial killer characteristics. Yeah, some researchers believe that their behavior and characteristics are debatable. The reason the police had difficulty finding clues to arrest them in the first place is because they had no pattern and attacked anyone and everyone, no matter the age. The case was finally solved when Malvo left his fingerprints on the document that was found at the murder scene, like we said before. According to Craig Cooley, one of Malvo's defense attorneys, Mohammed tricked Malvo into believing that the big sum of money ransom that they were asking for from the U.S. government would be used to establish a society for homeless black children in Canada. The two were arrested on October 24, 2002, when the cops surrounded the vehicle where the duo were sleeping. Some reports suggested that only Malvo's fingerprints were found on the weapons, but Malvo confessed that Muhammad was the trigger man for the first six shootings. Malvo was first arrested under federal charges, but they were dropped, and he was transferred to Virginia custody and sent to jail in Fairfax County. There, he was charged for two capital crimes, murder and also the unlawful use of a firearm. The trial was later moved to Chesapeake, Virginia, where Malvo pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He stated that he was under complete control and manipulation of John Allen Muhammad while carrying out the crimes. On December 18, 2003, Malvo was convicted of all charges by a jury. Later, the jury made the recommendation of giving him a life sentence in prison without any possibility of parole. But finally, on March 10, 2004, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. October 26, 2004, he pleaded guilty to two firearm charges as well as murdering Kenneth Bridges and attempting to murder Caroline Sewell to avoid a possible death penalty. He got another life sentence and an additional eight years for weapon charges. When Malvo committed these crimes, he was a juvenile and it was highly debatable about whether or not he was getting the death penalty. Since the crimes were committed in two different states and both states had different rules when it came to the death penalty. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. Maryland allowed the death penalty, but only if the person was an adult at the time, which Malvo wasn't. But Virginia allowed the death penalty even to juveniles. So in May 2005, he was extradited to Montgomery, Co Montgomery County, Maryland under heavy security. In 2006, he confessed that he was guilty of four additional shootings. On October 10th, 2006, he also pleaded, pleaded guilty of six murders in Maryland. In addition to this, he also told the police that he, along Muhammad, killed Jerry Taylor in 2002. On November 8, 2006, he was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole. 
After Malvo's sentencing, he apparently called a daughter of one of the victims he had killed to apologize for his misdoings. Wait, so he called a family member of one of the victims to apologize? Yeah, and he even sent a letter to apologize to John C. Gaeta for shooting him. In 2011, he wanted to change his name in order to be safer around other inmates, but a Virginia Circuit Court judge denied his request. Honestly, what did he expect? In May 2017, a Virginia District Court judge overturned the sentence of life without parole, stating that it was highly unconstitutional. But a Maryland Circuit Court George Circuit Court Judge Robert Greenberg disagreed with the overturning of Malvo's sentence. Interesting. Malvo is currently serving multiple sentences at Red Onion State Prison in Virginia. In September 2012, the Washington Post interviewed Malvo. In the interview, he stated that he had been a monster, but he also revealed that Muhammad used to sexually abuse him. Honestly, it was as if Mavo never really had a chance to begin with. Yeah, just to give a little bit, little bit of background on the duo, first we'll give a little bit about Malvo, and then we'll get into Muhammad. So Lee Boy Malvo was born on the 18th of February in 1985 in Kingston, Jamaica. To Uta James and Leslie Samuel Malvo, he spent most of his childhood in Jamaica, often neglected as a child. His parents were often absent, and he was left in the care of others. In 1998, Malvo and his mother moved to Antigua. This is where Malvo and Mohammed first met. And then the bewitching began. By 2001, Malvo came to the U.S. and was living with his mother in Miami. Malvo attended high school for a little while and later moved to Bellingham, Washington. By the time Malvo and his mom moved to the USA, Muhammad was already there, right? Yeah, Malvo was living in a homeless shelter where he began to develop a strange bond of father-son relationship with Muhammad. Lee Malvo and Una James were taken into custody by immigration officials in December of 2001 for being in the country illegally but they were released while waiting for a hearing, and Muhammad was soon reunited with Malvo. Muhammad seemed to control every aspect of Malvo's life from this point, imposing an exercise program and a special diet, one that reportedly consisted of just honey and crackers at one point. And since Muhammad was a former member of the U.S. military, he had experience with guns and began to teach Malvo his ways. In 2002, Malvo and Muhammad began to plan the attacks by touring around the country. What many people don't know is that they killed three people and injured one in Maryland and in Louisiana in September 2002 before the infamous shootings began. And then, of course, in October 2002, they started their assault on the Washington, D.C. area. Moving on to John Allen Muhammad, who was born John Allen Williams on December 31st, 1960s, in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was raised by his aunt after his mother died when he was four and he was the famous mastermind behind the sniper duos that terrorized Washington, D.C. for several weeks in 2002. He was a skilled mechanic and put his talents into making a sniper nest out of the trunk of his car, where him and Malvo would work together. While one would select the victims, the other one would pull the trigger. They often targeted people doing simple, everyday tasks such as pumping their gas or leaving a store. After high school, Muhammad joined the Louisiana Army National Guard. At first, his military career seemed promising. He was described as personable and outgoing by one of his commanders, but by the early 1980s, cracks were beginning to show in his facade. He got into trouble twice, once for failing to report for duty and another time for hitting an officer. Wow, that'll do it. Muhammad's first marriage was to Carolyn Kegler, and they had a son named Lindbergh. 
Fun fact, Lindbergh was the only one out of his children to see him before his execution. Carol wanted to go in and see him, but for whatever reason, she was not allowed in. Hmm, that's pretty crazy. Muhammad turned his life around in 1985. He separated from his first wife and converted to Islam and then joined the U.S. Army, where he was stationed in Washington State. And he later married Mildred Green, and they had three children. He became a skilled marksman and served in Germany and the Middle East during the Gulf War. Muhammad left the military in 1994, and he tried to start his own business twice. First, an auto mechanic shop, and then a karate school, but he failed at both. In 1999, his second wife, Mildred, had filed for divorce, and the next year she got a restraining order against Muhammad because he was actually threatening her. Shortly after the restraining order, Muhammad fled to Antigua with their three children. And where he also met his future accomplice, Malvo, for the first time. Muhammad later returned to the United States, settling in Bellingham, Washington, with his children. However, police officers found him and returned the children to their mother. Then she moved them back to Maryland. He was very enraged over the loss of his children, so he began to fixate on Malvo, who also had moved to Bellingham with his mother, Una James, like we said earlier. By the fall of 2002, Muhammad and Malvo were involved in a liquor store shooting in Alabama before beginning their assault on the Washington, D.C. area in October. And this is where they got the fingerprints from the brochure that they caught him with, right? Yep, they were stupid and they dropped it. Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred, and his three children lived nearby in Maryland, and there were reports that Muhammad was stalking the family around the time of the sniper attacks. On October 24, 2002, more than 20 days after the rampage began, the authorities surrounded the vehicle in which Muhammad and Malbo were in, which was a blue Chevy Caprice and not a white minivan like we said earlier. So, this is where we figured out that they were looking for the wrong vehicle the whole entire time taken into custody and arrested since they committed their crimes in several states, the authorities had to decide where the pair should be tried first. In Muhammad's defense, his lawyers pointed to Malvo as the sole trigger man. Still, a 2003 jury for the murder of Dean Harold Myers recommended that he be sentenced to death. Muhammad was convicted on six counts of murder in another trial in Maryland in 2016, I mean 2006. Malvo testified against Muhammad during the trial, saying that Muhammad had pulled the trigger on the first six shootings. Muhammad served his sentence at Sussex State Prison in Virginia until he was executed by lethal injection November 10, 2009. I also just wanted to add in that Muhammad went to his death claiming that he was framed. <laughs> okay, Muhammad. And to this day, Malvo is still currently trying to get a lesser sentence. Now that we went over the many details from this very extensive case, do you think he deserves a second chance? I think we can all agree that he went through some messed up stuff, mm -hmm. and there's a little bit of sympathy for him, but at the end of the day, he did kill many people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.